navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. I'm very excited to welcome today's guest on The Mentor ESQ. He is the top law enforcement official in Kings County, what all of us know as Brooklyn, my hometown. And uh, he is one of the most highly regarded, most prominent district attorneys in the United States, running one of the biggest and most prominent offices in the United States. And I am pleased to welcome the honorable uh, district attorney, Eric Gonzalez. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for the invitation to come on. Really appreciate having you here, and especially at the end of your week. Uh, we're here on a Friday night talking, and there's probably a thousand other places you'd rather be or not be at all. So thanks for marking out this little bit of time with us. Absolutely. So I'd like to let everybody learn a little bit about you, but just to start things off, um, I'm just amazed by the scope of your office of your job duties, of all the lawyers who work for you. Can you give us a sense of overall, you know, what your office is comprised of, the, the, the size of it, the staff of it, the people you, the amount of community members you, you, you worry about and protect, uh, and then we'll go from there if that's okay. The Brooklyn District Attorney's Office is an extraordinary place. Uh, there are extraordinary people, dedicated people who work here. We have over 1,200 employees. We have nearly 550 lawyers, uh, prosecutors who handle all kinds of cases from the lowest level offense, violations, um, to the most significant and high profile crimes that you read about in the newspaper, homicides and sexual assaults, and you know, really bone chilling uh, criminal uh, actions. The Staff here is very diverse. It's one of the most diverse offices. And to just put it to scale, the Brooklyn DA's office is the fourth largest district attorney's office in the country. Uh, we are responsible for handling, you know, year after year, you know, 100,000 cases or investigations. And, uh, you know, we represent and try to protect 2.5 million people who live in our great borough, Brooklyn. Wow. And you're in charge of it all. I am. I'm the steward. It's, uh, you know, what would be a, a, a big law firm by any standards. So how does someone get to be in your position? Can you tell us your journey? Um, I know some of it and uh, it's impressive. And I'd like it if you could sort of maybe start off with where you grew up and uh, your, your education and, and how you ended up uh, being the district attorney of Kings County. Well, it's an unusual path. It's not a, a likely journey. It's a very unlikely journey for a lot of reasons. I grew up uh, with a single mom. Uh, we lived in uh, Williamsburg, Bushwick as a young child. Upon my parents splitting uh, up, I wound up in East New York in Brooklyn. I lived in the 7-5 precinct. Uh, during those years in the 80s and 90s, uh, East New York was called the murder capital of New York City. I grew up in the 75th precinct, which was the busiest, the most dangerous uh, police precinct in Brooklyn and probably in New York City. Uh, by 
way of example. The year I was an intern to this office uh, in Brooklyn, uh, my precinct alone had 126 people murdered in, in the confines of that one precinct. Uh, I got into this job. Uh, I, you know, sort of got interested in doing this work. Quite frankly from witnessing as much crime as I did as a child. Uh, each and every day uh, living in East New York was a challenge. I witnessed uh, a lot of you know, drug abuse and a lot of violence, especially a lot of gang violence as a young man. Um, and I also realized that there was a real divide between what the community wanted in terms of public safety and the relationship that many of the black and Hispanic residents of East New York had with the New York City Police Department. Uh, and I was naive. I thought I could make a difference. So I started in this office hoping uh, that I could bring uh, my best judgment to the work that prosecutors do each and every day. I understood, Andrew, one important thing, that prosecutors, uh, they have a responsibility for public safety, but they really um, could impact the outcome of someone's life, whether it's a person who was accused of a crime or a victim who was looking for justice. The, the work of a prosecutor is so fundamentally important to our concepts of justice and whether or not our society is working. Um, and that attracted me to the office. I was very fortunate. I had the privilege of working for two district attorneys, uh, Joe Hines and uh, Ken Thompson. Um, the late, great Ken Thompson gave me an opportunity to serve at the highest levels of the office and ultimately promoted me to chief assistant DA, which is the number two job in the office. I was responsible for running the office. And when Ken got sick, uh, many of your uh, listeners will know that he tragically died unexpectedly from cancer that had been undiagnosed. Uh, I found myself uh, speaking to the governor who allowed me to serve as the acting DA of Brooklyn, and I decided to run for office. And I won in November of 2017, um, becoming the first uh, Puerto Rican, the first Latino to ever win uh, a borough-wide race in Brooklyn, but also the first uh, uh, DA of you know, Hispanic heritage to ever be elected in New York State, and probably the first male Puerto Rican DA in the continental United States. Wow, that is amazing and, and congratulations and, and knowing you, you're so well deserving of it. And um, did you go right from law school uh, into the Brooklyn DA's office? I did, I graduated um, from University of Michigan Law School uh, and I actually went to law school with uh, the purpose of becoming a prosecutor. I never expected to spend an entire career in one place. I've been here for in excess of 20 years now, uh, but I went to law school. I wrote my law school application essay about why I wanted to be a prosecutor and, and my commitment to public safety, uh, my commitment to service to others, uh, knowing that I wanted to serve in Brooklyn. I applied to only two offices. I applied to the Brooklyn DA's office and Manhattan DA's office, received interviews at both offices, and was fortunate enough to get an offer here in Brooklyn, which I gladly and happily accepted. It's amazing. I would imagine uh, there may not be any other lawyers who have only had not only one job uh, or one employer their entire life, 
but actually for a district attorney to start as a new young lawyer at a law school at the DA's office and just work and work and work your way up, 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 up to the top of the chain is just remarkable. Yeah, it's an unusual experience. It's not a career path that I think is available for most young lawyers. I think that, you know, getting a breadth of experience and doing different things is advisable. Um, and I definitely advise younger attorneys um, to explore different opportunities and develop different skills. You know, for me, I felt this job was a calling. I was always happy to come to work. And because of the scope and breadth of this organization, there were a lot of different opportunities for me to continue to learn during my career, handling different types of cases. So I, for example, I started as a special victims prosecutor, handling mostly children, uh, sex abuse cases, um, sometimes physical abuse cases. And then I started to, I did that for nearly three years. And then I handled domestic violence cases and before I knew it, I was handling serious you know, shootings and homicide cases. Um, and each and every case just pulled me further into, you know, the love of the job. Um, I, I, I actively loved uh, working on these cases. I felt I was making a difference. Um, and, you know, having an opportunity at some point to supervise younger people really seemed to fit uh, my own personal career objectives, which was to teach um, how to be a fair and just prosecutor. You know, one of the things that I think helped me in my career, Andrew, is that coming from a place like East New York gave me a different perspective on our justice system than a lot of our younger prosecutors who may join the office um, to do public service, but also um, they come, quite frankly, to learn how to try a case, to learn how to be a litigator, um, and eventually uh, with a, a career objective of going out into private practice and, and earning more money. And for myself, having lived in the communities that I lived in as a child, this was really my sort of uh, opportunity to give back to Brooklyn and give back to our communities. Um, I really felt that I had unique um, sort of insights into what, life was like in the community. There weren't a lot of uh, um, black or Hispanic prosecutors when I started in this office, and there were very few on the management track. And so I had that opportunity, and I felt that I owed it um, for all the people who gave me a chance coming up to continue doing this. And then, like I said, Ken Thompson, you know, really took a chance on me and promoted me to chief assistant. You know, I talk a lot of, with, with a lot of lawyers from different backgrounds and different practice areas on the podcast, and it constantly reinforces through meeting uh, different attorneys uh, like yourself that our backgrounds so influence uh, not only what career path we choose, because there's so many different career paths as an attorney, but the type of lawyer we are and how we handle ourselves. And to hear you talk about your upbringing in these tough neighborhoods in Brooklyn, and you're still living in Brooklyn, you've always been a Brooklyn guy, and then to um, read the uh, Justice 2020 plan that your office has come out with, and uh, know that you're, I know how progressive your office has been, and, and I love there was, a, there was a, a quote in your plan that I wrote down, accountability is not synonymous with punishment. And in reading all the materials in your plans and in your publications and learning about the office, 
I see that you put such a strong impotence on working with communities and that just because someone does something wrong or commits a crime doesn't mean they need to be put in jail and locked away, that there's so many better ways to work in that it seems that you have taken the role when you took the helm of this office of saying we have to get communities involved and that will make a difference. And, and it seems uh, the proof is in the pudding and that's what you've been doing in your mantra. Can you talk about that? Because it just, you know, it's so hard for people to think outside the box. And I give you so much credit coming into such a high pressure position and not just following the steps, but saying, wait a second, hold on. Let's look at things differently and doing it the way you've been doing it. You're so right, Andrew. Um, Justice 2020 was an action plan. And it was an action plan for safety and fairness, uh, but it was also meant to be designed from those who are impacted by a justice system. As the acting district attorney of Brooklyn, I felt uh, that it was my obligation to reach out to all communities in Brooklyn and ask them what they wanted out of their justice system. And you know what I heard was that there was great dissatisfaction with our justice system from all sides, from those who are considered liberals or progressives to those who are moderate or conservative. Um, there were a lot of complaints about the issues of fairness, the issues of equity, racial disparities, um, the inability for law enforcement to feel like it's making a difference in quality of life issues. And so there was a lot of dissatisfaction. And so Justice 2020 was an effort to take um, stakeholders um, in the criminal justice system. So there were lawyers and police officers and academics. There were people who were formerly incarcerated and service providers and just, you know, thought leaders and members of the clergy and people who live in communities. And, and in all, there were nearly 80 people who were experts on issues relating to criminal justice and said, you're gonna have a new DA who's open to creating a, a plan for Brooklyn that really incorporates the needs that you have. You know, don't be limited to what currently exists. You don't have to think in a linear fashion, but really tell me what you want um, from this office, what you want from our justice system. It's interesting, I was having those conversations in the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017. We've seen the governor um, with the executive order, you know, basically order the police department to have that same conversation now uh, with communities. How do you want, what do you want from the police department? Um, so I asked those same questions to the people of Brooklyn um, in 2017, the early part of 2017. And we got a number of recommendations. There were 17 recommendations in total, but the four you know, prominent recommendations really uh, uh, amounted to this. There are way too many people in jail. There's two and a half, you know, 2.2 million people in jail around the United States. At some point in this uh, city, we had, you know, well over uh, 10,000 people in jail. And at some point at the highest points, closer to 20,000 people in jail. Um, did the system need to be that large? If the system is that large, was it ineffectual because it could not focus in on the people who were really the most dangerous people? Um, so there was a commitment 
by me, first and foremost, to reduce our reliance on incarceration and convictions um, as a primary response. Um, it was not about just consequences and punishment, but it was about crime prevention and helping people. Uh, the second part was to really bring in the community and get the community input and ask the community, what are you asking of your of your police department and your DA's office? What does safety mean to you? What's fairness and justice look like? How can we be better partners? Uh, all, every DA will tell you that uh, many victims choose not to participate in proceedings. And in fact, we estimate that about only a quarter of people who are victimized ever really come forward in court. Uh, so are they, scared? are they scared? Is that primarily why? I think there's, there's definitely fear. Um, sometimes it's just an inconvenience if it's not that serious of a case. But I think it's a, a, a true uh, disaffection with what the process is. Um, what comes out? What are the consequences that come out? I don't think that people feel that their needs are being met in the system. And so one of the things that we've put into place here are more restorative justice practices so that victims actually get something out of the process. Um, but, there, it's, it, but to your question, um, Andrew, yes, fear is a tremendous motivator in the system. When you testify against a person, even if they're going to be convicted, you don't know if their friends, their family members, other people who um, care about that person are somehow going to retaliate against you or your family members. Um, it's just an innate um, the ability to go to court, point someone out, and testify against them. It takes a very strong-willed person. But the second part is that not everyone is looking for that kind of punishment. In fact, um, surprisingly, especially with our younger offenders, um, many victims of crime really want accountability. They want uh, that person uh, to take responsibility for the harm that they caused, for the crime that they committed. Uh, but they're looking to maybe get prevention, uh, get them from you know, never doing this to another person. And we're seeing more and more in the system that many of the people who are being arrested either have drug addiction issues, mental health issues, um, and so jail may not be the best way to reform them in the first place. Uh, but also what's important that your listeners understand is that Justice 2020 is also a public safety plan. It's a plan designed to use our limited criminal justice uh, dollars and resources against the people who are the most dangerous um, drivers of violent crime. And the studies are pretty clear. It's about 1% of people who live among us, 1% of this population is responsible for nearly 60 to 70% of serious street crime. Wow. It's especially true in the gang context. Um, there's a number of people who are very violent who have to be identified, incapac incapacitated, and stopped from hurting. But we can focus our efforts on that group without having sweeps and, and widespread um, you know, criminal justice actions. Finally, we've also learned, you know, from experience, and I think this is coming from East New York, that when we criminalize young people in particular, um, we make it very difficult for them to ever be successful in their life. And so I saw firsthand a number of young men that I knew, classmates, people who lived on my block, people who played Little League with me, at some point get arrested, get in trouble, often for drugs, um, 
get a criminal record, may or may not have gone to jail for a period of time, but then those opportunities for education, opportunities for housing and employment had been diminished. Um, and especially for those who went upstate for periods of time, they were also isolated and separated from their families, often not welcomed back in their homes. Um, there was a lot of uh, hurt that had been caused, you know, hiring an attorney is an expensive proposition. Um, and a lot of these folks come back into homelessness or into halfway homes, um, and they don't come back to the community better. And so were there better responses um, to this activity? And so I think the answer is yes. We were very successful um, during the first three years of Justice 2020, focusing in on drivers of crime. And I'm really proud of this. You know, from 2015 to 2019, before this pandemic, Brooklyn had seen a 40% reduction in shooting violence, um, and about a third in homicides. Those are remarkable numbers driving down the crime so that um, two years ago, Brooklyn had the fewest number of homicides in its history. And last year, we had the fewest number of shootings in our history. So awesome. focusing, thank you, Andrew, we're focusing our resources on the right people. Um, we call it focused deterrence in a lot of ways, but doing that work, um, can make a, tr a dramatic impact in the quality of life that we have. And then we can use our, our remaining criminal justice dollars um, to do prevention work and to make sure that our young people are getting the support they need to, uh, you know, to live productive lives. It's awesome. And I, I thank you as a, a member of the community that your office protects. You know, my daughter goes to school in downtown Brooklyn, right by your office. And uh, we have family and friends. And uh, I've lived in the neighborhood since going to Brooklyn Law School uh, for 20, 26, 27 years now. And the fact that you were making it safer for me personally, and I can walk the streets at night and know that you are running an office that is making it safer for me and my loved ones. It's just amazing. And so I thank you for that. Um, I want to switch gears for a moment because you have this serious job. You have a prominent position. You have so much responsibility, um, but you're one of the guys. And I happen to know that because, um, you know, we're about the same age. And when I graduated from Brooklyn Law School, all my buddies went to the Brooklyn DA's office and they were all classmates of yours. Um, I was fortunate that I would have the opportunity to learn trial skills from my dad and go into private practice. But giving shout outs to our buddies, Mike Farkas, Mike Sabella, Jay Friedman, you know, uh, Arthur Idala, you know, these guys are all great trial lawyers. They're all friends of yours, friends of mine. And I've always been a little bit jealous of the camaraderie in the office. You guys all came up together, all like super skilled lawyers, really great in a courtroom. And um, we have our get togethers, we talked about steak night, Arthur was on here. And um, it's just great camaraderie. So. You know, it's in, you can have that kind of camaraderie and fun with really smart, competent colleagues. But how do you go from being one of the guys to all of a sudden being like this person that has so much responsibility 24-7? You know, uh, you, you, the governor is calling you at a moment, the attorney general of the state. You got to deal with the president when he's going off the rails, whatever it is. Um, how do you find that balance between still being able to be with the guys, hanging out, being like, hey, guys, I'm the DA. Sorry, 
you have to excuse me for the day or the week or whatever. How does that work? You know, we went through, you know, trials and tribulations together, right? So that friendship, um, that bonding experience that we had uh, is, you know, first of all, it was created over, you know, decades now. Um, but working together on behalf of the people of New York, uh, during, especially during the 90s when a lot of us started as prosecutors, you know, we were dealing with 2,000 people shot uh, a year, 800 homicides in Brooklyn. Uh, we would go out. We'd be, honestly, there were nights that I were, was out to 5 to 6 o'clock in the morning writing the case with the police department, writing up the cases, coming to work, maybe sleeping for an hour or two going to grand jury the next morning, trying to present evidence to the grand jury and, and repeat. And so we really learned um, to trust each other, to um, support each other. Uh, but we also really understood that the criminal justice system was not perfect. None of the, none of the fellas that we just talked about and none of my good friends in the DA's office ever thought that the people of Brooklyn had the criminal justice system it deserved. Uh, we, we always agreed it needed to do more. Um, and so they've all played a role in improving the criminal justice system. Some of them are defense attorneys now and, and holding me accountable to make sure that I can prove our cases. Um, but they've been leaders on bar associations um, and making sure that we're, um, as a bar association, so members of the Kings County Criminal Bar Association, supporting legislation and things to make our justice system work for victims, but also for those who are accused. And so, for example, you know, um, making sure that video interrogations of defendants are now recorded and so that that happens, that we can use photo identifications, things that actually make it more likely that we're going to charge a person and we're going to be correct and, and right in our charging decisions, but also, um, you know, strengthening our case to make sure that we can uh, appropriately prosecute cases. And I think that the fellas uh, and the people that work with me in this office, uh, it's men and women, who spent a lot of years uh, working on these cases, they want to see me succeed. Um, and so they've all understand that, you know, there are times now as the DA that I have to take positions adverse to them or their clients, but I'm doing my job. And I think they respect the office. And, you know, and I think that's the most important thing. This is, you know, I have much respect for our judges and I don't always agree with our judges and the decisions. And I think that my friends feel the same way. They may not always agree with every decision I make, but they understand that what I'm trying to do is make sure that this system protects our families, but we also have to um, make up for what we did wrong. And uh, we did a lot. We, we caused damage. And so, for example, um, I issued a report this summer. I have it here. I'm going to hold it up. Um, it's called 426 Years, and it's a report that we did with the Innocence Project and a law firm in New York City, Wilmer Hale. Uh, it's an independent report. It's groundbreaking. It has never been done before. And what we did is we looked at 25 wrongful convictions that came out of the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office over the past 30 years. And so, for example, it's an acknowledgement that you don't hear a DA say often is that our system is not infallible. Um, there are 2.2 million people in prison. People estimate 
that 98% of the time, the courts and the DAs get it right. But even a 2% error margin, if you times that by 2.2 million, yeah. you have tens of thousands of people who've been wrongfully convicted. And so we looked at the reasons for wrongful conviction. We held ourselves accountable. We were transparent with what went wrong. Um, and we want to learn from it. We want to make sure that that doesn't happen. So we're training our EBAs. We're changing practices and policies to make sure that we don't ever land um, in that situation again where innocent people are being convicted. We know that we can prevent most of this from ever happening. And so we're learning those lessons. Um, and I think those are the important kind of things that when we talk about holding ourselves accountable as a system, having a DA um, get an innocent person out of jail is among the highest callings that a DA can do. And we all agree, it doesn't matter if you're a conservative or a liberal, it doesn't matter because everyone understands there is no reason why an innocent person should be convicted or held in jail. It doesn't serve the, the interest of public safety. It doesn't give you know, a victim who lost a family member. Um, you know, it's an injustice to them and it's a travesty of justice for the family of those who you convicted or, and the accused themselves. So uh, there are a lot of things that we can agree on that the criminal justice system has to do better. And one of those things is this wrongful conviction. Another thing is how we deal with people with mental health issues. Uh, we have too many people with mental health issues that are in Rikers because there's been a failure by government to provide the resources and the ability to deal with them in mental health uh, settings. And I think another major failing in our criminal justice system is something that I've taken direct action on is our over-reliance on incarceration, on drug use. Yep. People with substance abuse disorder do not belong in jail. They commit a crime and they hurt someone, that's a different story. But the fact that they are addicted to a substance, the fact that they're hurting themselves with drugs, um, it should not lead to incarceration. And for too long, uh, we, sp we spent the war on drugs, we, we sent thousands of people to jail. Um, for using drugs or selling enough drugs to get by. I'm not talking about cartel guys or major drug distri distributors, but um, we're outside uh, methadone clinics arresting people who are selling a Xanax pill, that kind of uh, enforcement. Um, and so this office is moving away from that model. We have harm reduction models. So when someone is arrested for drug use, inst instead of sending out the DA to write up the case, um, through a program called Brooklyn Clear, we have service providers who go to the precinct, say, the district attorney would like to get you into drug treatment, would like to get you into services. If you agree to do that with me, um, the DA will not immediately charge you. And if you participate in getting yourself healed, uh, the DA will monitor you for a period of time. You have to substantially participate and follow the rules of the you know, service provider. And if you do that, the DA won't charge you and won't get you on the path to treatment. And those are different lessons um, that I think come from being a DA for 20, an assistant DA for 20 years, but also living in the community. And one last point, I'm still there, right? I still <laughs> live in Brooklyn, yeah. but I still actually live in the neighborhoods that I grew up in, raising my family there. I want my neighborhood to get better. And I know that these, um, these programs are so important to, um, you know, ensuring 
people that um, the police department and the DAs just don't simply care about arresting people. We actually care about um, helping people and getting them on the right track. That's awesome. And it's, in some ways, it seems like it just makes so much sense. You know, when I was reading through your materials and this great stuff that your office is doing with your leadership, why should someone go to jail because they have a, an addiction to drugs? <laughs> you know, it just, what does locking them away, how does that benefit anybody? And so the, the steps that you're taking in your office to address that are just so commendable. And, and you're getting a lot of um, great acknowledgement from it. My understanding is, is that offices from around the nation want to know, hey, what are you doing? You know, fill us in. And, uh, and that's just, uh, it's, it's tremendous. Justice 2020 and the 17 recommendations have um, been used as a platform by many other district attorney's offices across the country who did not have the resources to put together all these thought leaders. Um, and many of the recommendations that were written in early part of 17 are now being uh, implemented. And so for example, you know, I was speaking since late 16 about the decriminalization of marijuana. Um, you know, it, it did not make sense to have mass number of arrests for marijuana. And, and let's be clear what I mean by that, because I think um, people have no idea how many people were getting arrested in Brooklyn for marijuana possession. We're talking in the numbers of up to some years, 15 thousand people were being arrested for marijuana um, and that didn't serve a public safety value. These cases were ultimately dismissed after numerous court dates and numerous expenses but it did criminalize a lot of young people. 40% of the people that would come in for marijuana it actually meant their first arrest was a marijuana charge. Although the cases got dismissed it created their criminal histories um, and, you know, shockingly, and I can't underestimate how disturbing this is, you know, 93% in Brooklyn were people of color. So we know that marijuana is used by a lot of people, not by your DA, but by a lot of people. Um, and, you know, that uh, very few, of uh, you know, enforcement was done in non-black and Hispanic neighborhoods. It's just the enforcement was unequal. And uh, so you had this big racial disparity. And those things by themselves really uh, make people not trust that the system is fair. So I'm very respectful of your time and we only have a little bit of time left together. And before I'm gonna let you out of here and off the hook, I want to get a little personal with you. Is there something you can share with us that maybe people don't know about you? Something you like to do, something, a hobby, something about the man, the man, Eric Gonzalez, not district attorney Gonzalez that you can share with us. I'm always curious about that because people see me in one way and they'd be surprised if they knew about some of, some of the things I enjoy doing. Can you share something with us? Well, I'm a really good domino player. And, uh, <laughs> I love playing dominoes. Um, you know, I think it's interesting uh, coming from my background. You know, I, I, I grew up in a neighborhood that was, you know, predominantly uh, Hispanic and African-American. And so there's a lot of things culturally that um, it's just ingrained in my, I, I listen, I like listening to Spanish music and, and, and culturally the food, um, but Can you just, dance? Uh, you know, 
I took dancing lessons uh, prior to my wedding because my wedding was going to be basically an all like a uh, uh, Spanish affair. Uh, so the answer is yes, but it's not natural. It's not a. It's not in you know in, in, a. Uh, it's not something that I was born with rhythm. I put it to you that way. It was a learned a learned opportunity. But I, I enjoy, um, quite frankly, Andrew, um, just being in, you know, the neighborhood where I grew up in, um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, we grew up, my family grew up fairly poor, you know, poor, and uh, I enjoy giving back into my community. So as DA, um, it's very much like, you know, there's a certain amount of responsibility. You know, I feel very, um, you know, I feel a lot of pressure as it relates to dealing with victims of crime. And I spend a lot of time um, consoling people who have uh, been victims of crime. Uh, but in the community, I really enjoy just giving back. And uh, you can find me in a, you know, on the food pantry, in the soup kitchen, uh, not acting as DA, but just sort of uh, serving my community. And one of the things I'm really proud of during the, the COVID pandemic is, you know, my office, like many other government offices, were allowing a lot of their ADAs, a lot of their staff to work virtually. I've been here each and every day since March um, with the executive team, making sure the office is open and running. Um, but we have done numerous community events. And so we've had 42 food drives throughout Brooklyn, feeding um, hungry people and people who are food insecure. Um, each one of these events, you know, has fed, you know, two to 500 people. Uh, we, gave, we were able to give out turkeys and, and food um, this past Thanksgiving. And during the pandemic, when uh, hand sanitizers and masks were in short supply, we were able to, as an agency, collect um, donations for that and be able to give them out to people who would not otherwise be able to get them and afford them. And so as the DA, um, just protecting the community um, does not simply mean um, from street violence. It means, you know, really protecting them in all kinds of ways. Uh, so doing that work was really something that I take a tremendous amount of pride in, in that, you know, you don't normally see a DA and his office or her office doing this kind of work, you know, working directly with vulnerable populations. Uh, and I think interesting for your audience is that we're also trying to do a lot more in protecting uh, workers and working class people. So from abuse of, um, you know, construction accidents and uh, other things where people are being uh taking advantage of, you know, we've brought a number of cases where people have not paid their, their workers prevailing wage or, you know, unsafe working conditions. And uh, the last piece that I'll say that, um, you know, and this really came from talking to my friends in the defense bar and understanding this is that uh, immigrants in this, in our system are particularly vulnerable. And it doesn't mean just undocumented immigrants. It means all immigrants, including those with uh, visas and green cards and our DACA children. Um, they are particularly vulnerable in our criminal justice system. And the smallest encounter with this system could equal deportation. And so I've worked to try to even out that playing field and make sure that uh, we're very conscious of 
any interaction with an undocumented person or an immigrant or a non-citizen could have tremendous collateral consequences. That has been how we treat all citizens thinking about the collateral consequences of conviction, but making sure that the ADA is understood in terms of immigration, that this could mean the, the inability of someone for green card to ever become a citizen. Um, and I'm really proud of that work. Myself and the Attorney General, we had a very successful lawsuit against ICE. Um, and, you know, it's not normal that you see a DA and the Attorney General having to sue the government, but we needed to prevent them from taking unfair and illegal enforcement actions in our courthouses. And so that was a victory for all New Yorkers. Our courthouses need to be sanctuaries yes. so people can come in and fight their cases, either as an accused or a victim. And unfortunately, in the ICE litigation, we saw that both victims and accused were being arrested inside that sanctuary. We don't allow it in our churches. We shouldn't allow it in our courtrooms. Yeah, I saw that case that you did with uh, Attorney General James, and that was just fantastic that you guys stepped up to the administration and, uh, and did a great job with that. You know, it's clear, and my knowing you for many, many years, and just the person you are, that you are truly a man of the, the people, of your community. You've seen it all. Um, you've risen through the ranks. Um, you have so much that you've learned and absorbed. Uh, and and it's just, it's, it seems to me that you arrived at the perfect Perfect, perfect time and your ability and your skill set to really implement the change is just fantastic. You're a very thoughtful person. I'm so uh, impressed with the office, how you run the office and you as a lawyer and a person. And I'm thrilled that you were able to take a little bit of time to join me. I'm going to ask you one question before you go. Um, you, are, you oversee 550 lawyers. You meet with lawyers every day. Um, you you certainly have an opinion on what you believe is the definition of a great lawyer. And I'd like to know how you would define a great lawyer. Well, I think for a prosecutor, uh, there, there are three skill sets that I look for when we're doing hiring. Uh, one is a commitment um, to justice. I think that is the most important aspect of being a DA is you have to be committed to justice. And justice means a lot of things, but it also includes fairness and it also includes accountability. Um, judgment is keen. Um, prosecutors have to have good judgment and they're not meant to be zealots on either side. They're meant um, to really protect the interest of society and the accused. And then, like any, anything else, we look for people who are committed and talented in their professions. Um, so if you, if you have a strong commitment to justice and we believe you have good judgment, um, we think that you're uh, a strong applicant. And obviously, we're looking for talented lawyers all the time. So if you're listening to this and you think that um, you – want to pursue justice on the behalf of both accused and um, victims, this is a place to do it. I mean, it is an odd profession um, in one way. Uh, not many professions, you know, do you have a dual obligation? We have an obligation um, to, you know, to our victims and to our survivors of crime, and that's clear and everyone understands that. But we also have an obligation of fairness to the accused. And so prosecutors have to be balanced and have to have good judgment. Um, and then we'll help train you 
but having some natural ability in the courtroom is always uh, good. Like you, Andrew. <laughs> Maybe one day you'll bring me in uh, to train a few of uh, the team members and uh, do a little trial skills seminar there. That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> Sorry. I, I look forward to having you come in and talk. And, and uh, you know, the alumni, I, I should give a quick shout out before we get off sure. to the Kings County District Attorney alumni. There's hundreds, if not thousands of alumni who have proudly served the Brooklyn DA's office and, and our communities. And I'm grateful to each and every one of you for your commitment to justice. Um, you're all doing different things now, but I know you're all very proud of this office and you're all committed to the success of our criminal justice system. So I thank all of you for doing what you did here and to my staff that's currently here, um, do justice and we will get it right um, most of the time. And when we get it wrong, we'll make amends for it and, and we'll fix it. And that, that is all that you can ask of, an, of any office is to acknowledge when it makes a mistake. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule uh, to join me on the Mentor ESQ podcast. It's really a, a privilege and an honor. And again, so thankful uh, for the great work you're doing. Just keep it up. Keep doing it and uh, keep setting the standard and keep pushing those boundaries for better. All right, next time I come back, I'm going to brag about the work we're doing in post-conviction justice. Uh, but we have a bill. It's in Albany, and it's an important bill. It gives judges the opportunity to look at excessive sentences in our system. Uh, we all know that sometimes um, in the heat of a battle, you know, a defendant may get sentenced to, you know, a very long time in jail. And I'm talking about 50 years, 100 years. Um, and the system was meant to give people the chance for rehabilitation. And some of the sentences uh, really do not purport to modern you know, day senses of, of justice. Um, they, they're things that need to be fixed and reviewed. Unfortunately, in New York state law, there's not a, a provision that allows the judges to do this work. And we should, as lawyers, we should, should support giving some discretion to our judges to go back and fix some of those miscarriages of justice. Absolutely. I'd love to have you back on if you'll come on. I'll keep uh, hawking you down, trying to get you back on here because there is, there's so much to talk about. We literally could spend hours. I didn't even get to, I'd love to chat with you about bail reform and what's going on with that. And there's just so many amazing things uh, that are happening. And uh, hopefully you'll come back and, uh, and share some more of that uh, with me and with our audience. All right, Andrew. All right. Hopefully I'll see you at a steak night when it's socially responsible to do so. Absolutely. I very much look forward to that. Thank you again, uh, District Attorney Eric Gonzalez, uh, for joining us and for everything you do. I'm wishing you a great weekend. And to um, all of you listening to us, thank you again for spending time with us on the Mentor ESQ podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast episode, which I'm sure you did as much as I did, um, please share it with your friends, uh, your classmates, forward it to your colleagues. Uh, we'll put some links with information to the district attorney's office in the description so you can learn more all about their great programs, follow them on social media as well. I'm Andrew Smiley, uh, and thank you for joining me on this episode of The Mentor ESQ. Mm -hmm.